This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, Dr. Richard Severin, who is a visiting clinical instructor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Illinois at Chicago, as well as a clinical assistant professor at Baylor University. We're going to be talking about an article he and his colleagues published in PTJ entitled Outpatient Physical Therapist Attitudes Toward and Behaviors in Cardiovascular Disease Screening. Welcome, Rich. I'm delighted to have you with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on here, Dr. Jetty. I, I really do appreciate it, uh, an opportunity to discuss our work. I'm going to give listeners a brief summary of your article, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Sounds great. Uh, the purpose of this study was to assess the current attitudes as well as behaviors of physical therapists in the United States regarding the screening of patients with cardiovascular disease or risk factors for those diseases in outpatient orthopedic practice. They surveyed over 1,800 anonymous online surveys delivered via an email list, and they reported that just over half indicated that at least half of their current caseload included patients either with diagnosed cardiovascular disease or at moderate or greater risk of cardiovascular disease. Yet only 14.8% of the subjects measured blood pressure or heart rate on the initial examination for each new patient they saw. The most commonly self-reported barriers to screening were lack of time, lack of perceived importance. The most commonly self-reported facilitators of routine screening were perceived importance in clinical policy. So, Rich, your survey was disseminated across the uh, American Physical Therapy Association Orthopedic Academy email list, yet your response rate was fairly low, about, about 15%. Do you know how representative this sample was of the members of the Orthopedic Academy? Yeah, I, I'd say it's fairly uh, representative, and it's interesting because when we had sent it out, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, that that organization was uh, still a section. Um, you know, for a cold survey, uh, that this was not something coming from the orthopedic section. I had no affiliation with any of the you know, the members we solicited. Um, you know, that those ranges I felt were were adequate. Um, for that response rate, and we have pretty pretty good metrics on our completion rates, upwards of close to about 90%. Um, and then looking at the geographical distribution, I think we got a pretty nice uh, sample. So I, I'd say it's fairly representative. Um, looking at the age demographics, um, the number of specialists too, um, in our sample, I felt that was, was a pretty pretty reasonably reliable sample uh, that we obtained. Um, it's always a limitation with survey data. Um, that, you know, there's always going to be some bias of those who decide to participate, and those who are sampling already are a subsection of our profession who are members of the APTA and then further a member of the orthopedic section. So, yeah, I think, I think we got a pretty good sample. 
you note in your article that almost half of your uh, respondents reported examining a patient in direct access about once per yeah. month or less, and just under 24% reported never seeing a patient via direct access. That that was striking to me. Why do you think the the proportions seeing direct access were so uh, low? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and without giving a little bit, uh, without giving away too much, we, so the question we're actually going to be investigating uh, further in a, I guess, a secondary analysis from this data set, and we've got a couple that are coming out. Um, we, it, in speaking with members of the profession broadly, actually sampled, I oversee a couple of fairly large groups for PTs, uh, polling about 60,000 therapists, and um, we, you know, we ran this before this interview that, uh, you know, the, the metrics we got from that polling I just did, like, this past week were pretty were pretty similar to our survey, which makes me a little bit more comfortable, um, even though the re responses were pretty striking. Um, from what I've heard, quite a few people, um, if they are in a hospital-based outpatient clinic, they bill through the physician MPI. So if they obtain a referral from direct access, their reimbursement tends to be a little bit lower. So I think if we are getting a, a large number of people from academic institutions or academic hospitals or, or, or university-based hospital systems, that's going to probably explain it to some degree. Uh, the other side yeah. is we released this poll in 2015. Um, so there were, you know, the Mid-South and Mid-North were a pretty decent, uh, pre pretty decent amount of our survey respondents. Um, and in Chicago, where I'm based now, we had direct access, um, you know, in Illinois, but you weren't able to treat patients. Um, until this past year. Um, so that may explain it, you know, that why that was the case that, you know, if you're not, if you're not able to see patients beyond the evaluation or treat them, like you're probably less likely to be, you know, heavily reliant on direct access referrals. But it was a little bit surprising, um, but, you know, 24% never using it. And, you know, looking at how much we uh, dedicate to direct access advocacy and lobbying. Uh, the other side we're looking into in a future analysis is, <clears throat> You know, for those who have re uh, read the paper um, and gone through the supplements, we had five cases on there. Um, we're also looking at how clinicians decided to proceed based on a mock patient scenario. Um, so we think that may play a role, and that kind of ties into some of the things we may discuss about this about this article. Uh, people's or clinician confidence in managing a situation um, with a patient with risk factors or risk factors that aren't controlled. So I think that may be a part of it. Um, but, yeah, it was a little bit surprising, a little bit surprising. Yeah, it was an interesting finding. Shifting to the, the focus on blood pressure and heart rate screening, you report that uh, PTs who completed residency or fellowship programs screen blood pressure more often than those without this training, and holding a clinical doctorate or a terminal doctorate was also a significant predictor of screening. But in contrast, Possession of a board-certified clinical specialization was not associated with a significant difference in the likelihood of screening. Did you anticipate that finding? I, you know, I did not. Um, I, you know, I, you know, the, you never really know how these things are going to break down. Uh, I had a feeling that residency and fellowship training, having gone through two myself and having taught um, within a, a fellowship program here at UIC, the Orthopedic Manual Therapy, and, and helping out with our residency program here that we have at, at UIC. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've gone through two residencies. I understand the, 
the level of mentorship that goes in reflective practice uh, that goes into some of those programs. So I had a feeling they would probably lean towards the side of, you know, I don't want to use the word um, the higher standard of practice, but I do think, and I'm, I'm, for people who know me, I probably will you know, the bias here that I do think vitals, of course, are vital and screening these things is important. Um, so I had a feeling that would kind of translate into our survey findings. Um, but I felt as well, though, specialization would probably, would probably matter um, to some degree. And what, the way I, I view it is, um, you know, it's important that you have self-reflection on your own practice. I think most people do that, um, you know, as an independent autonomous provider. You're reflecting on what you need to do. You're trying to stay current. And, again, this sample that we, we obtained are people who are engaged professionally. They're members of the APTA. They're members of the orthopedic section. Um, you know, these are already people that, you know, are, are staying active, right? Um, so self-reflection is important. Um, not everyone who need, who obtains an orthopedic specialty, a specialization, any board specialization, necessarily goes through a residency training program. So what you don't get from uh, not going through a residency, you don't have someone reflecting on your practice from a third, like a, you know, a 3,000 foot view or, you know, a third party view. So I think that, that may be the factor um, that, you know, it's, you, you definitely get better um, or improve your practice from, from studying and practicing and preparing for a board specialization exam, but the structured mentoring and structured education and curriculum that are in a residency or a fellowship, it's a much different situation. Um, yeah, so I, that's, where I, that's where I think that kind of bears that out a little bit. As well as the terminal well, doctorate. We didn't, we didn't flesh out doctor of science or PhD. We had those all kind of included. And a lot of doctor of science programs for PTs, especially in the orthopedic section, I imagine be more like doctors of science and orthopedic manual PTs. So that's, again, more clinically oriented. So, again, you're getting this structured mentorship, you know, refining a practice. Um, so I think that may bear out into practice behaviors. And it's, just, it's speculation. Um, sure. But, uh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the board-certified clinical specialization finding that I didn't expect. The others, I agree with you. It makes sense. Yeah. I would have thought specialization might have been associated with a higher likelihood of screening as well. But your your reasoning makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's move on uh, and talk a little bit about your multivariate results. You showed that clinicians who were practicing more than 20 years were more likely to perform blood pressure screening in their practice, yet those with either a master's or a bachelor's degree were less likely to screen. I was surprised by the contrast in those findings. Did, did that surprise you, or did that make sense to you? It, it surprised me, given that, you know, we talked about this in the paper, that clinical doctorates have only existed, I believe, since 1992. I think Creighton was the first one to have it. Um, they haven't, you know, haven't been around a lot. And I think the first clinical doctors was, was a handful of students. It's a fairly new degree. There were even pe programs when I was in school, you know, in the early 2010s, um, that there were still, I think there's one or two master's programs and only became mandatory in 2015, uh, for every right. program. So I was a little bit surprised to see that. Um, but I, again, I, you know, and again, you know, people practicing 20 years or more, right? Like what, what's going on here? So, you know, what I, what we kind of, the way, and we talked about this a little bit in the discussion, and 
It's something we talked about with the, as, as a team as we wrote this up. I, I think it speaks to the, the, the previous point we discussed, this continued investment in your education and training. Um, though we didn't ask for it, and we, didn't, and we probably could dive into the data and, like, tease this out, who within that 20 years earned a terminal DPT or earned a DPT, because uh, we, didn't, we didn't parse out DPT versus TDPT, but we, could, we can make an inference from that. Um, you know, and, and just looking at it, a very gross analysis, there's probably a large number of that 20 years or above that earned a DPT, and it was probably likely a, a transitional DPT. So it speaks yeah. again, like staying invested in contemporary practice, staying invested in refinement, and again, not just self-reflection, but having someone refine and reflect on your practice, right? So I think that's what it speaks to, and you know, and that also speaks to where I think a lot of these things can improve is these. You know, you know, beyond just continuing education, like a structured mentorship program, which um, is not a guarantee in practice unless you're in a program that's invested in doing that for you. So I think, you know, it, it was a little bit surprising um, given just the, the timelines for these things, right? Um, but if you, you know, thinking about it again, transitional DPTs and what that entails and what, you know, who, you know, what you do to, to do that, right? So it, it, that's that's kind of where we, that's how we explained it uh, based on our data. Yeah, and I think, I think it kind of makes sense. Yeah, and, and it falls in line with the, some of the other themes that came out of this paper. Um, we're also finding, again, similar to that, we're, we're submitting this abstract for CSM without giving, again, too much away, that that may also predict, highest level of teaching education may also predict um, your decision-making based when you're presented with a case. Uh, with risk factors or, or risk factors that may be out of control too, which I, I find interesting as well. You know, from an educational point of view, you also looked at and found that there were no significant differences in the likelihood of cardiovascular disease screening based on the cardiopulmonary course format or the qualifications of the instructors of the cardiopulmonary courses. Um, what, what do you see as the implications of that result for uh, cardiopulmonary um, education? Yeah, I, that to me was arguably one of the more surprising fact or non-factors in a certain sense. Um, you know, Pam Bartlow had put out a great paper in Cardiopulmonary PT Journal, I believe, two years ago that looked at uh, the distribution of types of instructors, and that kind of led to why we we wanted to put this in this analysis. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really don't have a, a, a solid answer beyond, you know, maybe this is something that we need to explore a little bit further, um, as to, you know, do the qualifications matter or not? I think they do. I do think it's important as someone, again, who's probably biased because I teach cardiopulmonary at, at two programs. Um, you know, I am a CCS trained clinician, so, um, a residency trained clinician. I do think it matters. Um, but again, it, maybe it ties into it's not so much just your entry level education. Maybe it's more what you do outside of that once you start practicing. Like, do you seek again further refinement beyond just what you learn in PT school? So, um, yeah, I, I, that was probably the most surprising to me that that didn't seem to matter as much. Um, that, that, that the point you just made is what what struck me: uh, residency and fellowship training may be more important than the kind of didactic training one gets in their entry-level program. 
At least that's what what came to my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, and it, you know, and then you know, I do want to make you know, the caveat too that this is you know an, an isolated area of practice. I do think you know there's. I'm not sure if there's data out there, but it suggests that you know where you go to school or who the quality of your instructor influences practice. But it, it does seem to again like it, it raises some questions. You know whether or not you know what we what you know is it the entry level side or is what you do afterwards. So it's it, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. I think definitely requires further inquiry. Now your survey results clearly show that therapists understand the importance of screening. Yet you you think more efforts to improve understanding might result in more screening as you discuss in your in the discussion portion of your article. Do you really think that's going to have an impact given what you've been finding? Well, what we found is individuals who did not screen um and those who did screen, right? This is pretty, pretty similar that those who screened routinely on every new patient uh found their, their number one self-reported reason was that they found it to be important for their patient population, um, which on the opposite side, those who did not, you know, screen routinely, they perceived their number one reported reason was that it was not important. So I think that translates into a couple things. Uh, one, and then, and then I'm looking at the self-reported, excuse me, and then looking at the self-reported data um, on risk profiles, right? I mean, the, it, it was, it's pretty remarkable. We're looking at m- most, most survey respondents reported the overwhelming majority of times they're encountering a patient on, as a new eval or their current caseload includes patients with at least moderate uh, to greater risk factors um, that, you know, they're aware that patients have these factors, but they're not aware that how important it probably is to screen these things. And if they do perceive it to be important, it translates into more routine screening. So I think it's, yeah. it's connecting that link that, hey, like you're seeing yeah. these patients that you probably need to screen for these things. The other side is yeah. lack of a clinic policy was the other other factor. Um, and I think so it's, it's whenever you're trying to change practice, it's got to be both. You have to make people understand why that policy is important. If you just implement a policy and people don't understand, like, the importance, they're probably not going to do it or they're not going to do it earnestly. Um, you know, uh, we do see this – we do see differences in settings where this happens. So home health, I believe you're required to enter blood pressure and heart rate data to be to receive reimbursement. Um, you know, there obviously there may be some pitfalls with that and, you know, whether that, act, that data being entered is reliable or accurate. Um, but in our sec- in a secondary analysis we presented at CSM, I think in 2018, 2017, um, we found that the screening rates between home health and outpatient PT were night and day, about 100% for the sample we had for home health clinicians. So I think policy matters, but I also think we need to take it a step further and make people realize why it's important, which has kind of led to the the, the impetus for the Vitals or Vitals campaign, which is something we started back in 2015, which is now a section-sponsored campaign. We put out resources on how to effectively and accurately take, accurately take blood pressure. Um, you know, we're putting out additional resources on interpretation and how to proceed. Because um, I, though it was not something that 
was I don't think it, I think it was maybe like a the third or fourth self-reported factor um, of confidence in being able to manage the situation. Just in my interactions with clinicians around the country, around around the world, I do think quite a few clinicians, sizable percentage, avoid taking it blood pressure and heart rate because they don't know what to do um, when a patient has a has a blood pressure that's in a critical value. Like, what what do I do here? So I think that that's yeah. Schrodinger's kind of box analogy or Schrodinger's cat analogy, box, right, where if you avoid the situation or avoid opening a box, you don't have to make a decision. So it, I think that's part of it. But I think the first step's raising awareness that this is an issue. You're going to see these patients. You can't assess or screen blood pressure or heart rate, visual observation. You can't do it from medication review. You can't do it from a subjective report. You have to take this data. Uh, you have to measure it. So, yeah, that's clinic policy and raising raising awareness and, and perceptions of importance, I think, will be will translate into hopefully improved practice behavior. Well, I think your article really calls attention to what I see as a real problem out there in practice. So uh, I appreciate you publishing it, doing the work, and for taking the time today to talk about it with, with me and to share it with our listeners. So thank you very yeah, much. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. And, again, we, we've got a few more papers in kind of in the pipeline for this. This is uh, the first of hopefully many. And, you know, the, the next step really is to provide resources for clinicians. We're, we're working on a few things. Um, as well, hopefully, and will be out in the next, the next few months. So we're excited. I think I agree. It's, it's an issue that I think we can take ownership of. Um, and I'd even like to see us go further as incorporating blood pressure management um, into something that we do in our practice. Like we're seeing these patients, our data supports it in everyday practice. You know, maybe that's something we can look into for, for reimbursement of managing blood pressure with exercise. So that's, again, we're, we're already seeing these patients. Maybe it's an opportunity to help improve hypertension control in this country through through movement. This is an APTA podcast.